0: This is the second episode in a two-part series. Please listen to The Cedartown Jane Doe, Part 1, before listening to The Cedartown Jane Doe, Part 2. This is The Fall Line.
1: I think, uh, you know, bringing this to light, uh, especially after the number of years that have gone by, uh, to the public's intention is, is so important to this investigation. And, uh, you know, we tell the public, you know, if, if you recognize something, uh, about this, if you're listening to this and the details sound familiar, if, if you knew someone back then that was just disappeared and you don't know, you know, where they went, you know, give us a call. Uh, I know that, that we don't close unsolved case files. This, this would be considered an unsolved because I don't have an identity of the victim. And um, I know that the passion of all the work that went into this case from the onset, and I know that it, it has not been forgotten.
0: In our last episode, we took you to Polk County, Georgia, where, in the county seat of Cedartown, three people were shot and then set on fire. The investigation, begun in September of 2003, became more complex with each discovery. After several weeks of investigation, local law enforcement had positively identified two of the three victims, Cesar Juarez Vasquez and Arturo Torres Ventura. Arturo, who had survived both the arson and the execution-style shot to the back of his head, had been life-flighted to Grady Hospital in Atlanta, where he was in critical condition for months. He died without regaining consciousness. The third victim, the young woman, was still unidentified when Arturo passed away in November of 2003. As we mentioned last episode, investigators had discovered that 5067th Street, the home which was set on fire and whose occupants were shot, was a brothel. The home was one of several in the area being used by sex workers, most of whom were migrant women from Mexico and Central and South America, as a place of business. The brothels functioned in networks, run by a few locals, including a young woman, and serving a largely Latino clientele. Sex workers would work at one house for a week or two, and then they'd travel to another. Then they'd leave with their earnings, which could mean heading to other places in the state, the southeast, or back-to-home countries. The houses also employed at least one man each. The male workers would collect money— provide protection, and serve as, quote, caretakers or controllers, per the Cedartown police reports. So, where are we now? In December 2003, back in Cedartown, police followed a complex trail of utility bills, business cards, and apartment leases to identify potential witnesses and suspects. And eventually, that work paid off. Because that December, Cedartown police made an arrest in the case. Through interviews, they had identified a local man, Felipe Romero, as a possible resident of 506 7th Street. When they had questioned him, Romero gave that address as his residence. He was initially held for giving false ID and forgery because he had a fake driver's license. According to the Rome Tribune, authorities weren't charging him for murder, but they definitely saw Romero as someone who could help fit the puzzle pieces together. The Tribune reported that, in addition to the procurement charges that were eventually brought, quote, investigators discovered that he was a deported felon with a conviction in California. The article goes on to quote Detective Moloch, quote, We're anticipating federal charges of illegal reentry into the U.S. by a convicted felon. And there was more. Per the Rome Tribune, he would eventually be federally indicted for intention to distribute meth, cocaine, and marijuana, a connection between the parallel threads of the investigation. It's worth noting that Romero also worked for a taxi company. That's another connection to the case. If you'll recall last episode, a taxi business was mentioned twice, both in the directions given to Aturo's brothers and on business cards that were printed with brothel phone numbers. Romero never was charged with the murders at 5067th, 7th, but by February of 2004, someone would be. The case would grow much larger than the confines of a single home in Cedartown, and many of the violent crimes in Polk and Floyd would be shown to be related. To understand that conclusion, we have to go back to 2003, a time when residents of Polk and neighboring Floyd were inundated with crime. Per the Northwest Georgia News, Floyd alone saw 10 murders in 2003, and Polk had a similar figure. This surge in homicides coincided with the booming methamphetamine trade, which itself brought on plenty of other crime, robbery, drug sales, violence. Those high homicide numbers were not random, and investigators reviewing other deaths that year set out to prove it. In March of 2003, two Floyd County men, Chris Fortenberry and T.J. Agen were shot in their home. The Rome Tribune reported that the two men were discovered by Agen's father, who came by the trailer to check on them. Unbeknownst to his father, T.J. had been using meth, and according to Fortenberry's brother, they'd been worried about owing local drug dealers money. You already know of the triple murder in September of 2003, but there was another homicide that month, too. In fact, it happened on September 14th just two days before the fire at 506 7th Street. According to the Tribune, Arthur Glenn Glaze, described by his family and friends as, quote, a biker with a heart of gold, was riding his motorcycle down Potash Street when he was shot in the chest with a, quote, high-powered rifle. Glaze's out-of-state family begged locals to come forward with information, and detectives said the case was actively being worked. It would be February of 2004 before details surfaced that began to connect some of these cases to the murders at 506 7th Street. Within the meth production circles in northwest Georgia, a group that would eventually be defined as a gang had emerged. This gang didn't have a name or affiliations to organizations outside Georgia. But law enforcement argued that they operated as such, and over 20 people were eventually charged and prosecuted under the RICO Act. That's the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. Passed in 1970, RICO is, per NOLO.com, quote, a federal law designed to combat organized crime in the United States. It allows prosecution and civil penalties for racketeering activity performed as part of an ongoing criminal enterprise. Motorcycle gangs, mafia enterprises, street gangs, all have been prosecuted under RICO. In Floyd and Polk counties, the meth trade had created a large network of dealers who eventually worked together. And per RICO standards, they fit the definition of a gang, bringing drugs in and out and exacting punishment on people who crossed them. And not just on rivals, on customers, unhappy or who owed money, on middlemen on low-level dealers, and on people working in the margins, too. All of this converged at 506 7th Street that day in September. Because locals weren't just visiting sex workers there, they were also buying drugs from one or more of the men who worked out of the home. All of this helped to explain the arson and murders at 506 7th Street. As law enforcement began to identify the gang members, a name eventually emerged. Daniel Viana Reyes. According to witness and informant statements, he was, along with an associate, the murderer of the three victims at 506 7th. Mention of him first enters the police file records on January 1st, 2004, just about three and a half months after the fire. He was not initially arrested on murder charges, those came later. At first, Daniel Viena Reyes was charged with, quote, illegal entry into the United States, possession of a firearm, and possession of less than an ounce of marijuana. Vienna Reyes was questioned by Cedartown detectives and GBI agents in a bilingual interview on January 30th, 2004. His story shifted a number of times. They asked if he'd heard about the fire on 7th Street, and he said he hadn't. Then he changed his mind and said he had because he'd been at a friend's restaurant and seen the helicopter heading toward the blaze. But then he backed up and said it was actually the children of the restaurant owner who told him about the fire. And when he was asked where he'd been the rest of the day, he said he'd been in Rome, Georgia, working on a plumbing project. He told them that he'd never been to the house on 7th Street, but he knew someone who lived there, Felipe Romero, whose arrest we told you about earlier in the episode. He said he'd maybe been in the yard. Then he said that he'd maybe heard that the husband or boyfriend of a sex worker had found out that she was working there and had gone in and killed everyone. At that point, the interviewers told him that he'd been identified in a photo lineup by eyewitnesses as having been at that house, that they didn't yet know who'd committed the murders, but they knew Vienna Reyes was there when it happened. When agents questioned that restaurant owner, they found out he hadn't even been at work that day, that his business was only open three days a week. The restaurant owner did know Villanueva Reyes, though, as a friend of his brother's. He was very sure that he had not seen Villanueva Reyes that day. With the transcript of Villanueva interview, the police file ends. But then the media picks up the story in early 2004, as the arrest well and truly begin. It turns out that Daniel Vianareas was one of the major players not just in Cedartown, but also in Northwest Georgia's methamphetamine trade. He and another man, Miguel Perez, were each charged with three counts of kidnapping, use of a firearm in a crime, and with murder, and the arson was an additional charge for each. Vianareas also faced a number of other charges under Rico based on his involvement in the gang. According to the Rome Tribune, the men had set that fire to cover up the murders. Vienna Reyes and Perez went to the house on 7th Street, specifically to murder one or more of the men over bad drugs, weak meth that customers were complaining about. And the Cedartown Jane Doe? We don't know how much she knew about the second business operating out of the house. Maybe she was aware of the entire enterprise. Perhaps she wasn't told anything at all. There was one witness at the trials who commented on the Cedartown Jane Doe's involvement, a woman who'd been part of Vienna Reyes' circle before she became a state witness. According to that witness, everyone in the house was aware that drugs were being sold. This witness, Amanda Sorrell, was repeatedly identified in court and the media, which is why we use her name here. According to court records, she testified that she'd been involved in Cedartown's drug scene for some time and that she knew many of the defendants. She said she'd been an unwilling witness to a number of violent crimes. Per the Tribune, Sorrell said that as a result, she was suffering from, quote, panic attacks and ongoing mental health issues. Sorrell testified that she had regularly gone on drug errands with Vienna Reyes and others. Eventually, that meant that she would personally witness murder. Sorrell told the court that she had been with Vienna Reyes inside the home when the murders at 506 7th Street occurred. She was able to name some of the people at the house, including the Cedartown Jane Doe, who she reported knowing as Andrea. Sorrell continued by saying that she'd witnessed this woman's murder, that she'd seen Reyes put a garbage bag over Andrea's head and then shoot her execution style. She saw Cesar and Arturo shot too. Though Sorrel repeatedly uses that name, Andrea, we can't find anything else identifying the Cedartown Doe as such, or evidence the name could be used to discover her real identity. Sorrel also told the court that she'd taken part in the arson herself. She explained that under orders, she had dumped, quote, flammable liquid on the floors. According to the news coverage, her testimony was somewhat controversial, at least from the defense's point of view. She'd been given immunity and, as the Tribune wrote, quote, had been given protection by the FBI and close to $25,000 over the last four years to help pay her rent and other expenses, end quote. The defense suggested that she would have been prosecuted in the sweep if she'd not turned state's witness and questioned the veracity of her statements. Of the dozens that were standing trial, local news coverage largely focused on five men. Daniel Villanueva Reyes, Miguel Perez, who was also charged with those 7th Street murders, John Smith, Sammy Duque, and a suspect from Alabama named Shane Rosser. According to the Rome Tribune, the five were, quote, accused of committing half the murders in Floyd and Polk counties in 2003. The article continues, quote, The group is believed to have been operating since March 2000, and investigation has already led to the indictment of more than 40 people and has resulted in convictions for the distribution of more than 1,000 pounds of methamphetamine. The arrestees were a mix of locals who'd been in the moonshine and then the drug trade for generations, as well as more recent immigrants to the area and several residents of Alabama. It was those five key players, especially Sammy Duque and Daniel Viena who oversaw much of the drug traffic into and out of Polk and Floyd counties. Authorities connected the gang to some of the other deaths in the area, too, like those of TJ Agan, Chris Fortenberry, and Glenn Glaze. The men responsible for Agan and Fortenberry's deaths were tried and convicted. And although Glenn Glaze's death is technically described as being an unsolved and open homicide, Agent Foster and the other law enforcement personnel are convinced that one of the primary leaders of the gang is also responsible for the death of Mr. Glaze. That individual was eventually sentenced to 27 years in federal prison with, quote, deportation to follow. By late February of 2008, Vienna Reyes and his primary co-defendants, the leaders as they were called in various documents, had been convicted of most of the major charges against them. Vienna Reyes had also been convicted in another murder. The Daily Citizen wrote that he killed a man named Jesse Vargas in Rome, Georgia, in 2002. The Tribune reported that Vargas, who'd been shot eight times, was murdered for being a potential snitch. At sentencing, court records note that Vienna Reyes received a sentence of life plus 160 years. So, by the spring of 2008, the case was closed mostly. But the Cedartown Jane Doe still didn't have an identity, whether or not Amanda Sorrell might have known her as Andrea. And though the gang had largely been dismantled, it's likely that Polk County residents were still afraid to talk, to identify her, even with the major players in prison. There had been a few early leads, mostly in the weeks right after the fire. Tips had come in from town and from other areas of Georgia. A woman from Duluth, which is about two hours east of Cedartown, called the police station in November of 2003. She said that her mother, who managed a Taco Bell in DeKalb County, told her she recognized the Cedartown Jane Doe. She'd seen the photo on the news and told her daughter that the woman looked like a girl named Patricia. Patricia had apparently briefly worked at the Taco Bell, and after she left, quote, some people had come to the store looking for her. Detective Moloch arranged to have DeKalb County law enforcement take pictures over to the mother to see if she could identify the Cedartown Jane Doe. There's nothing else in the file concerning that tip, so we can assume that it didn't pan out. Then there was a tip closer to home from a woman in Cedartown, who said she recognized the Cedartown Doe as having lived in a local mobile home community. The woman, who'd worked security there said that she'd seen the victim's photo on the news and recognized her as someone named Maria Garcia. Apparently, Maria had been the girlfriend of a drug dealer, and they'd been forced to move when management found out. Police discovered that the mobile home park in question had been closed down and tried to follow the name supplied, but no other reference to this information is made in their reports. According to Detective Moloch, they distributed flyers in English and Spanish, and ran some Spanish-language advertisements via Atlanta media. That's in addition to English-language news coverage and dissemination of the victims' forensic art and photos. Though the only publicly accessible art today is the forensic bust, you can check that out on our social media. There was at the time, and still is, a sketch, too, done by then-GBI artist Marla Lawson. That was distributed in 2003. In November of 2003, Cedartown police reports show that the victim's fingerprints were shared with other authorities. Per Moloch's report, quote, I requested copies of the postmortem prints so they could be forwarded to authorities in Mexico, Guatemala, and to the U.S. Immigration Service, so that a check of the databases could be made in an attempt to identify the victim. Apparently, this yielded no results. Other identification efforts include that the Cedartown Jane Doe's autopsy was performed by the GBI, and according to a quote from police, a forensic anthropologist did examine her. As we researched, we'd seen in a few different articles that the Cedartown Jane Doe was described as being possibly Guatemalan, but there were never any details included as to why that was suspected. So when we spoke to local law enforcement, we asked Detective Moloch to fill us in. Apparently, this was an educated guess and was made based on a combination of factors. The anthropologist examination, testing, witness information, and the countries of origin of other women who were working in the brothels at the same time. So her origin isn't confirmed, but it's a good lead, a place to start. And police need all the leads they can get. In our series on the Beaufort County Jane Doe, we covered some of the challenges faced with a victim who may have been born in another country. There's the possibility of limited, fractured, or absent missing persons databases. Those that do exist are often run by volunteers rather than authorities, and may be private, meaning that civilians, like us, can't scroll through the listings as we would on NamUs. We also told you that if a victim who dies or goes missing in the U.S. is undocumented, Friends or relatives may hesitate to come forward, that is, if they're present in the country at all. And because the Cedartown Jane Doe worked in a criminalized profession, there aren't employment trails that might otherwise be pursued. Many undocumented workers who engage in legal labor, like at a manufacturing plant, will create a record that can be used to help identify or locate them. We can't know what brought the Cedartown Jane Doe to sex work. If the other women in the homes are to be the standard, then it's most likely she was an undocumented consent sex worker who would travel to the southeastern United States. She'd be coming up for month-long visits, maybe a little more, and moving between two or three houses, earning several hundred in cash each week. She might then stay in the U.S. or travel back to her country of origin. When you combine the transitory nature of her work with her undocumented status and the criminalization of her profession, she becomes triply difficult to identify, another person categorized as the missing-missing. While the bulk of available literature on migrant sex workers discusses only trafficking, which we've covered before, there are now a number of works that focus on the lives of consent migrant sex workers too discussion of how the overlap of illegal identities affects their lives. There are academic publications like Dr. Elizabeth Bernstein's Brokered Subjects and Dr. Laura Augustin's Sex at the Margins. There are papers, research projects, and books created by current and former sex workers, too, like Revolting Prostitutes by Juno Mack and Molly Smith. And there are extensive resources published by The Desiree Alliance, The Red Umbrella Project, the Sex Workers Project, and others. Though there has been some journalism on the importance of decriminalization in sex work, there's been little mainstream media coverage of the intersection of issues a migrant sex worker in the U.S. might face. The first is obvious but vital. There's no way to get a work visa for sex work, so entering the United States labor force via legal means becomes impossible. And the stigmatization can create a double layer of vulnerability. It's more difficult to work safely when there's no recourse for confronting danger via legal routes. And there can be more fear. Fewer reports of partner or employer violence, of property and physical crimes committed against immigrants or sex workers. There can also be a transition from consent to coerced or forced labor, or the promise of one kind of job and then the reality of another. Because of the nature of the Cedartown Jane Doe's profession, likely consent sex work, we've sought sources outside the dominant cultural understanding of trafficking. We're still learning and reconsidering a lot of preconceived notions and questioning how those views developed in the first place. In academic and advocacy circles, You can find work on how migration, labor, and exploitation can intersect. Drawing on a comparison between mainstream movies like Taken and Real Life, the authors of revolting prostitutes who engaged in sex work themselves write that international trafficking most often occurs when a person attempts to enter or leave a country. They say that the line between the trafficking of people and the smuggling of people is not as defined as we might assume. And they point out that smuggling can move into trafficking when terms are changed. Say, a person wants to enter the country, pays a smuggler, and then starts on a journey. But as that journey progresses, what if more money is demanded? What if the promised employment doesn't exist or isn't in the agreed-upon field? Smith and Mac point out that anti-trafficking laws seek to save people who've been kidnapped. But in this kind of scenario we see someone who's been exploited and who wants to be in the United States. We spoke to a source who had interviewed consent migrant sex workers, and they pointed out a few other situations they'd seen, including the withholding of pay or the threat of blacklisting, so that if a worker complained about the conditions or clients at one brothel, another might not employ her. She might end up marooned in town with no way to contact her loved ones. There have been attempts to increase education about the various issues faced by migrant sex workers, but it's been difficult. The Desiree Alliance, a sex workers advocacy group, had planned a conference for July of 2019 called Transcending Borders, Immigration, Migration, and Sex Work. The organization had to stop publishing the donors' names due to harassment, and eventually they had to cancel the conference, too. They felt that the risk to attendees was just too high. While many undocumented sex workers are permanent residents, with extended families and roots in a particular city, the majority of women who came to Cedartown, they were only visiting. It's even possible that when they left their point of origin, they didn't know the precise area to which they were traveling. Or perhaps they didn't choose to tell their friends and family where they were going, which would have made finding them even more difficult. And that's if a loved one in another country would be able to successfully file a report in the United States or even in their own country that was then communicated to our authorities. In our episodes concerning the Beaufort County Jane Doe, we discussed the ads that Major Bromage ran in Spanish-language television and the tips that came in from that that raised the profile of the case. A fresh round of ads, not just national, but in Cedartown and surrounding cities, too. Perhaps that could help the case, and most vitally so. Finding her country of origin might be impossible, but there's a good chance that someone in town remembers her. J.P. Foster says that he's gotten to know a lot of people in the Cedartown community and his new code enforcement role, and that he's built a number of friendships, too. Perhaps that kind of interaction between law enforcement and community will help as they approach a fresh round of identification effort. In the following clip from our conference call, J.P. Foster and Regional Assistant Special Agent in Charge Brian Johnston talk about revisiting the case.
2: Just having the opportunity of revisiting the case file, uh, looking at some notes. Obviously, many of the records and interviews had been typed up. And refreshing our memories, there are Several individuals that I have jotted down that I want to attempt to locate to see if they could provide any information as to the identity of this Jane Doe victim. In my current capacity with the Cedartown Police Department, it's bringing me in touch with many individuals in the Hispanic community that I have developed um, really good relations, uh, relationships with. I think the trust level is there. And um, I I can see me going to those individuals in the near future uh, inquiring about this particular victim.
1: One of the things that I like to say is this, this case was investigated with such quality back when it first happened. It's very unique to have a case where we have an unidentified victim, but yet we have held those responsible for that person being a victim accountable already. So that's a that's a unique situation in law enforcement, one that, that we don't see very often. And I think that just goes to the, the testament of, of how hard it, this was investigated from the onset and the, and the quality of that investigation. I think one of the things that this has done in this podcast and us all kind of getting around a, a table again together has kind of uh, made us more aware of what was done and, and if nothing else, uh, you know, we've all refreshed ourselves uh, with the case file of of some of the things we have and put our heads together and and use some new technologies that are out there and, and, and use that to our advantage.
0: We also wondered about the possibility of forensic genealogy and whether familial DNA might be one way to solve the case. We know that can be a challenge with an international victim, unless they have extensive family in the U.S., or unless there happens to be an organization and their country of origin that actively connects DNA samples. For the Cedartown Jane Doe, isotopic testing to identify region might be the most beneficial way to apply newer science. We spoke to Cedartown law enforcement about that and other possibilities, and the GBI regional assistant special agent in charge, Brian Johnston, was able to comment on the status of any further forensic testing. A major positive in this case is that, unlike in many others we've covered, the victim was not cremated.
1: We have preserved uh, very favorable DNA samples, so we have that. Uh, we also have uh, some 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 bone samples and things of that nature. Uh, we are in the process, believe it or not, still in the process of getting that isochemate isotopic analysis completed. That's in the works. So I'm hoping that that will, you know, even narrow our search down when we get the answers to that.
0: I'm assuming that the samples that you have outside of isotoping would mostly be held to test against possible family members if she was, if there was an identification that was made.
1: Sure. Absolutely. That, and it's loaded up into the various databases uh, that are available to us. And, you know, who knows what the future is going to hold in that area. Uh, but but at it, the it, very, very least, we have very favorable samples of that, uh, you know, of both types of good identifiable DNA samples to go on. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll keep those in certain databases in case we get a hit. And then obviously, if we, we, if we get any proactive leads that we can do some comparisons on, uh, we absolutely can do that and have the ability to do that.
0: So, where does the case of the Cedartown Jane Doe stand today? There are samples available, isotopic testing in process, and they have enough material to pursue new identification technology as it develops. Local and national interests, though, that's going to be vital. Her case was probably overshadowed by the enormous Rigo prosecution that sprung up from the fire at 5067th Street, which isn't surprising, considering the scope of the trials and the results. The law enforcement officers who first tackled her case have since met up several times in recent months to organize for our interviews and to refresh their memories, and they say they're ready for another push toward identifying her. Someone somewhere is looking for the Cedartown Jane Doe. Maybe you or someone else listening can help give her back her name. Identifying her family may be difficult, but a local source told us that there would likely have been at least one person in Cedartown at the time who knew her, who perhaps felt intimidated and wouldn't make an identification at the time. But it's been nearly 17 years. A revival of local coverage might encourage identification of her now. New forensic art, for instance, might spark a memory, especially if it was circulated in bilingual ads. There's geo-targeted advertising, too. We've told you about that in previous episodes. It could be run in Cedartown itself, where we know for a fact that she lived, even if it was for a short time. The Goodyear Village, the neighborhood where 506 7th Street is located, it will still have some residents who lived there in 2003. Both J.P. Foster and Detective Moloch, who worked the case, feel that tips from locals will be the key. We just
2: we need help uh, you know we needed help back in 2003 and obviously we're at a point uh, here in 2020 where uh help is also being requested and needed uh, somebody out there we believe knows who this individual is and that somebody or somebodies could be locally still here in cedartown or they could be uh you know outside the state it could be outside the country. And and we're just we're just hoping and praying that with help from your podcast that uh, and plus with a a renewed interest in the case um, that we have taken that there will be something good that will come of it.
3: JP is exactly right. We have done exactly what we can up until this point to find out who this young lady is, and uh, the only disappointing thing of this whole experience, which it was a it was a terrible, terrible thing that all this was terrible that took place. But what still is outstanding to us is that we would like to know, and we would like to be able to tell this person's family, our friends, know what happened, and to find out who she is. That's that's the only question we have left. Now, uh, the defendants, we've already been to court. We've already they've already been sentenced to. To very some very severe, some of the most severe sentences that I've ever seen in case in a case like this or cases, and uh, this is what nags us to find out what's going on. I mean, what has you know kept us going on this? We just need to find out who she is.
0: The Cedar Town Jane Doe was a young woman of 15 to 18 years old and was possibly of Guatemalan descent. At least one witness identified her as Andrea, and she may have used that name. She was badly burned, and her physical description is limited, but she's described as five foot one and approximately 100 pounds. She had long black hair, brown eyes, and wore gold stud earrings. If you can help or offer any information regarding the case, please contact the GBI at 404 270 8151 or the Cedartown Police Department at 70-748-4123. seven four eight four one two three we'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken the time to support our sponsors leave us reviews or support our show directly on patreon or via paypal we couldn't do it without you special thanks as always to angie dodd thanks also to nancy rivera and aaron bowen for their translation work Special thanks to Dr. Elizabeth Bernstein, who took time out of her busy schedule to offer advice. Do be sure to check out her book. It's called Brokered Subjects. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, Brooke Floyd, and Jess Watford. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Special content advisement by Professor Marcella Fuentes. Theme music is by R.J.R. Find our merch in the Exactly Right Podswag store, and a portion of our merch proceeds are donated to support the work of the DNA Doe Project. Up next, Season Seven, Carolina Girls, will begin soon.